All right, guys. On today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we have Matt Hollerbach, who is the uh, writer behind the blog Breaking the Market. And I've been really looking for this episode. Uh, we connected a while back. Um, you know, Matt had found some of my my work in podcasts and writings, and it kind of aligned um, some of the concepts aligned with what he does. And um, you know, I've been going through a blog and was excited to get him on it just to and chat behind some of the ideas because I think some of the things he talks about and the ideas are kind of you know big ideas that apparently fly in the face of you know traditional finance. And I say apparently not because I don't believe in them, but actually because they some of the ideas already aligned with things that I had come up with. And so they, they kind of made intuitive sense. And the idea that these may not be kind of mainstream ideas, so to speak, I found um, pretty interesting. Uh, before we go on, just a usual disclaimer, of course, that everything on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and not to be construed as investment advice. With that said, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your background first so the audience can get an idea of um, kind of where you're coming from. Sure, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, so I, um, I'm i a mechanical engineer um, by degree and uh, profession, so similar to you in that I have an engineering background, um, and I have been working in the engineering field uh, all my life, but I had a, a passion for investing, so I spent um, many hours in the evening after work and on the weekends just studying, investing, trying to learn how it works, um, the best ways to approach it. Um, and just, you know, af- after years of doing that and thinking maybe I found some interesting things to talk about and learn about, uh, I decided to start a blog to share those issues. Uh, the blog is called Breaking the Market. So breakingthemarket.com just to kind of, and it, it talks about my, my framework of, of how to approach investing, um, mostly through just the understanding that investing is a lot of randomness. And so you really need to understand the way randomness works and the best ways to harvest randomness and approach, uh, you know, using randomness so that the randomness itself doesn't, doesn't eat away at what you're looking. And then, you know, attacking that with a simple framework just through simple assets. Um, is kind of the, the point of the blog. And then I share on the blog, like the positions of the strategy. I'm trying to be very open, similar to how you try and share a lot of information and just show back histories and how things were and what the positions are at the moment. So people can understand and track live with, with where it is and try and understand the pro- thought process. Got it. Yeah. And, and just for context, so on your page, uh, you have a section called university, which is I, from what I gather, kind of a curated selection of all your blog posts that sort of kind of guide from beginning to end the ideas that you, you want to set forth and how those are the foundations of your approach on asset allocation. Now, I, I read through those and I'm just now starting to go back and try to read everything in the archives from beginning to end. So if there's some holes in my knowledge, it's because I'm kind of working through that. Um, but one of the the big themes is your focus on the importance of geometric returns, right? And that kind of informs your entire framework for asset allocation. And And you made this notion that this focus on geometric returns isn't that widely adopted and how the industry kind of focuses on arithmetic returns. Um, can you speak to like, uh, is that just from what empirically we've seen or is there research you've seen that just shows people just focus on that? Why is it that um, there isn't more focus on on geometric returns? Um, well, I think the I think the difficult thing is, well, first of all, let me explain what geometric returns is. I know you have an intelligent audience, but just in case. Some people don't know where it, where it comes from. Um, so the geometric return stems from the idea that, that uh, invest, investments compound. So they grow through 
through multiplication. So, you know, every day you go up a few percent. This is where when you, we talk about cager, it comes from. Um, so compound growth rates. Um, the the reason the geometric return is so important is because like um, a simple thought process of a, a random game where you go up 25% if you, if you win a coin flip on heads, but you lose 20% on a coin flip on tails, that seems like a good game because you're more like you're going to make 25% if you win and you lose 20% if you lose. So that's a positive return. The problem is, is if you play that over and over and over again, 25% up and then 25% down compounded, you know, repeated through multiplication ends up being no wins at all. You, most people will trend towards no profit whatsoever. Um, so when you look at a game from that perspective, it can maybe not look as enticing and as promising. And, and you can take this to an extreme where you could look at it, you know, a game that's, um, let's say 50% up, but uh, 40% down. Once again, that still seems positive, but if you repeat that, you're likely to bleed yourself dry. Most people will end up with, with no money. If you repeat that game, you know, over and over and over again, because 50% up and 40% down is, uh, is ends up being negative. So once you grasp that, that repetition of compounding can take games that look positive, they look enticing. They look like things that, um, everyone should should want to play and realize maybe you don't play them or you have to think of a way to play them differently it, it changes the way you look at look at a market um it, when, when you get into like how people traditionally think and some of this that i'm going to say is more economics than it is finance but people look at the the arithmetic average which is just the standard average that we learn about you know earliest in school and we think about most and think that's that's a fair and balanced position a place that, you know, it's a fair game if, if the chances of you winning uh, are positive um, on a single round. But I think that the markets don't necessarily pay as much attention to that, that they pay much more attention to how the geometric return uh, plays out. And therefore, that's where people, why people want premium in return. Um, it's part of the reason that the markets, if you allow and build diversification, will give you return is because, because the market has to build in and try and balance itself around a geometric return. And so because of that, you as an investor need to think long and hard about how your investments will compound and how, you know, if you're getting into bets that maybe look really good in the short term, but if you repeat them over and over and over again, you're going to end up losing money. Um, and that, 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 you know, that difference is really intriguing and um, it's hard to sometimes get into it in pure words, but it can lead to some weird conundrums in and and things in when you look at math games as to you know causing projection to curve through time um or you know just causing people to not not gather where where the market might be balanced yeah i i think basically all of this stems from the the notion of volatility tax and i i think it, this is a testament to why your writings uh, you know the ideas align so much with what what i do and for those who have um, followed my podcast, you may have heard this. If not, I would go back and listen to episode um, 60, which I literally titled one minus one does not equal zero. <laughs> and that that's a kind of a, a nod to, again, if you go up 1%, down 1%, right? You're not back to square one, right? And I, and I talk about the idea of asymmetric compounding because uh, compounding downwards can hurt you more than compounding upwards. Uh, and so, so that really makes a lot of sense. And so with that in mind, um, can you speak a little bit to about how 
you know, the focus on geometric return, geometric compounding informs your framework for asset allocation. I, I know there's a lot to go through because um, your entire blog is kind of building up to that that kind of final the portfolio construction. Right. But maybe you can just speak high level of some of the ideas that guide your philosophy in terms of asset allocation. Sure. So I um I I, I like I wanted to keep it simple. So I only I only invest in three things. Um, well, four things because you should include cash in that. So I invest in four things. One of them's cash. Um, I don't often hold cash, but uh, but it, it is perfectly willing to. The S and P five hundred, long term U.S. Treasury bonds, and gold, and those were picked essentially because they're generally uncorrelated or negatively correlated with each other. That's certainly not one hundred percent the case, um, and not always the case. But they're three very big liquid assets that are roughly uncorrelated with each other, and there's gen- there's good reasons to believe that you give them enough time and they'll make money. They'll make they'll make a profit. Um, and then what I do through mathematical formulas of trying to maximize or emphasize the geometric return is I just take those four positions and adjust their weights through time. So one of the key things I get into is the fact that volatility, um, it clusters. So it's not, it's not totally random. It's not totally unpredictable. If, if you have a time of low volatility, most likely it's going to stay roughly that way. And if you have a time of very high volatility, very high chop in the market, it doesn't usually just snap its finger the next day, become calm again. It, it's still choppy and it may slow down, but it stays pretty choppy. So if you know that, then you can know kind of roughly the volatility that you're sitting in in the market. And as you mentioned earlier, volatility drag is a big problem and it's a bit of the root. It, it explains the difference between an arithmetic return and a geometric return, or it, it explains a lot of the difference between the geometric return and the arithmetic return. So if you can monitor that and understand what volatility regimes we're kind of in, it can inform if you should own assets, you know, which assets you should own more of. Um, and then secondly, correlations between assets also are, um, they're, they're also sticky like volatility, and then they don't usually snap on a finger. Uh, and just change one day. They can they can change over you know over weeks, but they're not going to change tomorrow. So if you focus on that too, you can figure out how to blend your portfolio so that you can have uncorrelated assets. If they're uncorrelated, you can be willing to you know invest in a certain way that's maybe a bit more aggressive, knowing that one should be uh, help somewhat protect with the other. But when they get correlated with each other, maybe you back off and be more safe. So it's a dynamic evaluation of how those three assets would interplay with themselves based off of a rough understanding of where the market correlations and volatilities might be at that moment, knowing you know full well that these are all guesses. So you kind of have to build in factors of safety into what you're doing so that you don't get too aggressive and do trusting in those numbers. Do you do some kind of look back in terms of monitoring the correlations, and then based on that, that kind of informs the um, the weightings? I do, I do, um, and I, I don't get into that too much in the blog. I I don't know. I think I use maybe a one month look back in what I described in the blog. What I do in practice is a bit more complicated than that. Um, I've become a really big fan of ensemble type methods for using to understand. And predict where the market is, finding different ways. So um, I, I do various lookbacks, and I also don't always build volatility purely. When I evaluate volatility, I don't always follow that. Do it purely off of closing prices. I do some um, 
mean true range type estimates, which are just looking at highs and lows um, is another way. And then I kind of blend multiple singles to get signals together to give myself an idea of what the volatility is. You, you can also use pure VIX um, as a signal as well. And it's, it's decent. The problem is, and you, you may understand this just because of the fact that you work on the uh, selling volatility side is that the VIX is often slightly uh, inflated based off what realized volatility is. And I'm, I'm trying to look to understand what I think realized will be Got uh, it. as opposed to implied. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and this idea of the non-correlated assets and that, that of course makes intuitive sense. And I think most of my audience would have seen or heard me reference that that video by Ray Dalio or his Holy Grail concept of the fact that, you know, if you can mix in more and more uncorrelated assets, right, you can get the same or higher returns while, while reducing the risk. Now, right. look into the correlations on top of that, and, you know, and, and focusing on the idea of uh, increasing the compound or the geometric return, it seems like, because I haven't read all the details of the inner workings yet, but on top of the correlations, you're also trying to monitor, I guess, the volatility of the assets. And so are you trying to scale down the ones that are more volatile at a, at a given time and therefore using that as a way to further kind of boost the geometry return? Yes. So, um, so volatility drag for a, for a log normal distributed return stream, which, you know, investment streams of stocks and, and bonds and gold are not exactly log normal, but they're, they're close to get you a rough idea. So the, the math for that is, is you take the um, square of the volatility, uh, which is the variance and cut that in half. And that, that's your volatility drag. So what that means is, is that's, that's a decent estimate of what your volatility drag is. Let me say that. So what that means is, is when volatility gets really high, um, you're going to experience, you're likely going to experience a lot more drag. The the only, so all things being equal, you should probably not hold as much of it if you're going to go through that drag because if the drag is going to eat into your portfolio. You would have to, to me, you would have to mentally justify that there's extra return coming from that higher volatility, that something in the market must have changed to, so that you expect higher return. And, and quite frankly, I don't think that's usually the case. I think if you look at a lot of these times, just because volatility goes higher, that doesn't mean that you should expect to make a higher return to counteract that drag, um, especially in the short term. And I, I think that's one of the parts where you've mentioned about how sometimes it makes you re-question some standard um, thoughts in, in investing. I, most people think that that is a pure connection between return and volatility, that there's always some kind of link. And I'm not entirely sure that that's true. So when I, when I effectively didn't find enough evidence to think that that was true, I decided to pretend it wasn't true. And if I still think that the returns are the same, but volatility goes up, that's a signal to hold less of, 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 a, of an asset. Got it. Okay. And then, so you're also looking at some kind of historical measure of the volatility, or are you trying to estimate, you know, what the volatility of the assets will be at, at a certain time, or like you said, in what regime we're in and that kind of exactly. an input. Okay. Yeah. And then I, and then I scale the portfolio accordingly. So, um, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of tie it into some of the things you do with credit targeting in that when you're, when the volatility regime in options changes, you're perfectly willing to, in some of some of your strategies and that you've talked about, you're perfectly willing to move your position. So instead of just taking a bigger credit, which is essentially taking on a bigger risk, 
you're willing to move the credit, you know, farther out um, to a lower delta or, or hold less or, you know, you adjust based off that as opposed to just being um, static in your opinion of I'm always going to sell a certain position, no matter what the credit is, you're willing to move that around based off the, the way that the volatility of the market moves. And I, I try and do very similar. It's a different math structure, but it, it functionally looks very much the same. And that like, I will reduce my exposure if volatility goes up and I will increase my exposure if volatility goes down. In general, there's a little bit specifics, but the general principle is that's the way it works. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And we'll get into that shortly. But uh, the idea of credit targeting for me is it, it ends up being a form of rebalancing basically mm-hmm. right and and i know um for you uh i think you touched on this but there there's a trade off of course between the balancing frequency re- rebalancing frequency of your portfolio and the and the trading cost right and and also depending on the size of the positions because I, I think there's certain uh fixed costs that kind of scale better when you can trade larger um mm-hmm. so i guess that's something you have to kind of just be cognizant of um and do you focus on are you, are you still doing weekly rebalancing or what's the frequency that you tend to gravitate towards? So, yes, that, that's the, the easiest answer is yes. And what the blog itself is doing is is definitely weekly rebalancing. I've, I'm a little bit more in practice, a little bit. So I, what, just so everyone knows that the, the portfolio that's on the blog is not what I trade technically any longer. It's very close, but it's not exactly, I've made some adjustments to it, but I've left the blog the way it is. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I've implemented some bands because the, the key, the key to rebalancing is, is putting yourself back in the right position when you are out of balance, when your portfolio is in a, in a, not an optimal situation. Um, so if the portfolio doesn't really move much over a week, if everything stays roughly where it was, you don't really need to touch it. And as you said, there's trading costs to rebalance. You have to pay commissions. You have to pay bid ask fees. So you don't necessarily, there's, there's kind of a threshold of where you would rebalance and not rebalance. Um, so if the market's moving a lot, I will actually rebalance halfway through the week. I'll take a look at what's going on and be like, look, it's moved a ton and we're way out of balance. And so I'm going to rebalance halfway through the week. Um, but other times if the market is really calm and stable and it's not really moving very much, um, you don't necessarily need to rebalance every week. The key is to put just to make sure that if if things get out of whack within the portfolio, that you you put it back to where where you get the highest geometric return. So there's some so, path dependency to determining the frequency and practice, I guess. Yeah, correct, correct. I mean, it you know, it in. in in pure math, the faster, the better, like you would rebalance constantly. Cause obviously you're always getting things because there's volatility. They're slightly out of whack. You know, it's always getting slightly out of whack, but because you have to pay to rebalance, you have to pay a fee to rebalance. You, you shouldn't technically do it every single, you know, it's every moment because that would, uh, that would eat away at your returns. And you don't necessarily get a huge benefit if it's just a little bit out, but you can get an enormous benefit if it's, if it's way out. Got it. Um, yeah. And, uh, before we segue into the, the next part and kind of talk about how your work coalesces with with what we do, um, are you trading any option strategies yourselves, or is this just something that you took an interest or studied? So, and that's what led you initially to kind of gravitate towards or, or find my podcast and my work. So, I I have 
I have bought long options for a while, mostly just for fun. Um, because it is fun to just throw out a long option and see if they hit. And of course, sometimes they hit and you get big payoffs. Uh, I've also done it in a pretty deep exploration of using it as a hedge. I've written some blog posts about some of the, the tail hedging aspects and how even though um, owning tail hedges and, and the simplest thing is just buying you know deep out of the money puts is unless you have an amazing skill, you're probably going to lose money, pure money on that strategy. But from a portfolio perspective, doing so can help your compound growth rate. Um, which is once again, a focus on the whole, you know, emphasizing the geometric return of, of your whole portfolio. So you can take on something that gives you a loss and it will help your, your portfolio in the long run because it'll buffer the, the big losses um, and give you capital to reinvest, you know, right after you get that loss. Um, so I've studied that for a long time. And, and the interesting thing is, is when you do that, you, you do come, have to come very much to terms that you're taking on a losing position. And that the people on the other side of you with these trades are probably the ones actually making money if you look at that trade in isolation. So you start to kind of realize that, you know, selling volatility and selling puts in a short term makes money. But I had never touched that and then never messed with it because it always scared me. I was, you know, always understood the ability that the losses could be enormous if things moved hard, partially because I'd also seen every now and then on the other side when some of the longs, longs <laughs> exactly. hit and I'd like, wow, I just made, you know, 20 times my money. That was great. Or you just um, took 20 times someone else's money, right? That's, that's the other side. Of yeah, right. Basically. Exactly. Right. And then that's technically what, what happened. So like, I'd always been terrified of that, but, um, but just the fact that I paid attention and realized that kind of the edge, the, the people making money, if you have skill, unless you have some kind of skill in the, in the long vault, game um the people making money generally speaking are on the short side but that's obviously very tricky too because uh because they can get blown up so i i, I just kind of studied it from the side and then i i listened i heard your podcast with um Corey oh Corey, Austin. right 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 got it yeah that's last summer one. and uh that it was just eye-opening um listening, you know, listening to your approach. Cause I, I was in the right frame of mind at that point. Cause I had kind of come to terms with the fact that there, there was a way to, to do stuff with short vol that people could clearly make money off of it. You just had to be real diligent and smart and, 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 um, and disciplined in how you were going to approach it. And uh, I listened to your podcast and it opened up a lot of thought processes. Um, you know, we, you're an engineer too, at least by background. Right. Um, and we approached some of the thoughts I thought very similarly. And then of course you have your, your, um, your website with all the, the sheets and things that you've shared on it. And I dove into it just to learn more and to see what you'd done and how you'd structured things. And I was really, really intrigued um, by how you laid it out, because I think there's a lot of similarities in the way we think, even though you were doing it on a very different structure with options uh, than I was, but some of the, the basic principles I believe in were sitting within, within your strategies. Yeah, and this is why I was excited to do this talk today because there's a lot of concepts and we'll go through a few of them and we can basically tie them back directly to some of the concepts that that you believe in. And something that I found interesting was because um you know, we both have an engineering background. Uh I don't have any formal you know, finance pedigree or education. Now you did at some point, you know, you got your, you became an RIA, right? Um, at some that's point. True. Okay. That's true. I, I also have a, a master's in business administration and MBA. Okay. So I, I, I had to take some finance 
got it. classes in there. And then I did start an RIA uh, during COVID because, you know, we were stuck at home and I had time to do it. So I went ahead and studied for the tests. I said, whatever, I might as well just do that. So I started a small IRA, RIA. So I have an IRA called Pronghorn Analytics. Um, I don't market it much, but it's it's out there. Um, and I, there's a link to it on my blog. Yeah, yeah, I can leave a link in, in the show notes later. But but I wanted to bring that up because because of my complete lack of formal finance education, I tend to, you know, in a kind of bombastic and on Twitter, sometimes I, I kind of speak loudly and I'll use terms that in hindsight, I've realized is like completely the wrong nomenclature. And so everything I've done, right? And, and the fact that these concepts intrigue you, I, I can't take any credit for being like, super smart or having found something, you know, like just through pure intellect, a lot of stuff was trial and error and just doing things and following the empirical data and backtesting, almost brute forcing our way to our current approach. Mm -hmm. And so I would say things that it seemed really, now I realize we're probably just seem flat out wrong, but it's because maybe my words weren't quite right. And so it was really eye-opening. And now even reading through your blog, being able to kind of tie some of these concepts, you know, for example, you know, I got a lot of flack on Twitter for this concept of expectancy hacking and, and the same things like stops raise expectancy, which which ironically, I did some more testing that, and I think they can in certain senses, but I realized now our focus was more on improving the, the geometric expectancy, right? Improving the, the geometric return. And so one mechanism that I use and this was purely because during COVID, you know, we used to trade, you know, let's say a fixed contract size. And so you have probabilities, you know, you have certain delta, I talk about backtest and using stops. But if you're trading, you know, a fixed contract or a fixed delta, then your credit's going to vary, right? And so just from the angle of, I don't want sequence risk because when volatility is high, we're like, oh yeah, we're going to get crazy credit, right? We're going to make so much money. But then like, if you have a high credit and you take a loss, you just have a bigger loss, right? If you're using a fixed loss multiple. And so we came at an angle wanting to control the consistency of returns and reduce the sequence risk. And that introduced the concept of credit targeting. But like you said, it's, it's almost a way of rebalancing, right? Because when you have, you know, you talk about your blog, if you have a portfolio of you know x number of underlyings and one stock outperforms right then your your portfolio can be kind of dominated by the volatility and returns and the volatility drag of of those disproportionate underlyings right and that's why you rebalance and, and similarly you know for for a sequential strategy where you're running multiple you know positions like theta engine right you don't want any one position or one trade to dominate the performance so the credit targeting becomes a form of rebalancing essentially right and does that make sense um i think you know we we're touching on it a little earlier it, it it does i i think i i think it's been interesting listening and seeing other people interact with you on twitter and how some people go like that's <laughs> that's crazy to like do some of the things that you say you do and i'm like i i, I it, it just occurred to me listening that like the credit targeting does have a very there's a sound foundational concept behind it. And then the, this, the stops as well. The stops thing to me, honestly, I, I was a little suspicious too. Oh, we'll get into uh, that for when, sure. <laughs> when I first got into this, but it's okay. We can, we can hold off then on getting into the stops because it's, I think it's brilliant actually um, what you're doing with that. And uh, yeah, when I dug into the math, it's, it's, it's really interesting, but. Um, and, and one thing um, I think in terms of like, when you do your back testing, right. 
and, and the concept of rebalancing, right? That's all kind of baked into the math. So it seems very natural. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I found, and I need to do an episode on this and, and talk about it, but in backtesting with options, uh, off-the-shelf software was pretty rudimentary, you know, a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, now I'm using Optional Mega, or that's one of the ones I use anyways, and I promote that because it's an off-the-shelf if you can't code your own backtest. And they're getting, you know, exponentially more robust and more comprehensive with the kind of criteria and parameters, right? But there was a time when backtest, you would do a single contract test, right? And that's essentially has all the problems I just mentioned where the mm-hmm. scaling of the trade is different, right? So a one-lot backtest, similar to how you talk about when you do an arithmetic return over a small sample of you know trades or whatever, you don't have that compounding com- uh, volatility drag. But as soon as you want to do something long-term, multi-year, you're going to compound that effect you know, of that dispersion, right? And so one thing that the backtest uh, eventually introduced is rather than a fixed contract, you can scale with capital, right? So say I want to always allocate you know, a fixed percent of capital to the strategy. So there's a way of introducing the dynamic uh, scaling to that. But there, there's, there are some issues with that. Now, that, that's pretty good. But uh, you can imagine, for example, um, you know, depending on the size of the portfolio trading and the strategy, your return may not scale at the same rate as, for example, if you're trading the index, right? If you trade if the index is growing at you know 10% per year and your strategy is compounding your account balance at 5% per year, then even trying to scale capital starts disproportionately sizing up the trade inadvertently, right? Do you see where mm-hmm. I'm going with that? And so having the credit targeting and the way I set up sort of these longitudinal studies is like taking a net lick, finding the percent you want. Of, of the bet, right? And then scaling that and using that to translate to the credit. And, and so there's a bit of like the, the tests uh, that I do have like fractional contracts and stuff. And, and it's purely for illustrative purposes, but it gets the point across of like, hey, if in in real life and practice, I was scaling as my account grew, right? What would that actually look like? Right. And so what I'm getting at is with backtesting, like I think that's one of those nuances where people don't, you know, I've never seen the focus on that anywhere else. Um, and I find that it can really make your back test kind of, in a sense, more accurate or more true to life, so to speak. Um, yeah, no, I think you're totally right. And I like, um, you could see that when I started look digging through your spreadsheets, how you kind of studied, studied that concept and figured out how to handle that, especially when you had multi-year back tests and your account was growing. It, it is... I'm similar to you, and even with what I did with my three assets, I, I built my entire own backtesting strategy. Like, to I didn't rely on anybody else's information. I just got the raw data and then built up an entire thing to to test it. So, um, I, I think a lot of people, when they look at options, kind of do what you said: is that they just run something, and it just spits out a standard stock size, and it doesn't contemplate the fact that one, that size is going to grow through time, assuming you're making money. It will also shrink, I guess, if you're losing money. Um, or it, 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 it's the inverse, actually, because if you make money, you're actually betting less as you grow, and then you're actually overbetting as you go down, because if you, if you go through a stretch where you lose money, but you keep betting at the exact same size, you end up having problems um, because you start overbetting. But the... To me, the thing about what you did with credit targeting is it just 
if you go back and look when it comes to options, there's, you know, there's times when you can have some crazy high volatilities. We've obviously we had really, really high volatility in um, 2008. If you go back that far in a back test and then COVID times recently, uh, though the decisions, what happens during that times dominates the, the overall performance of the portfolio. If you continue to be willing to bet huge, like if you allow the fact that the market has gone volatile and is willing to pay you a bunch more, um, and you just accept the fact that I will, I will bet big just because the market got volatile. Um, it, your, your total returns are dominated by just a few single items. Um, and I don't think that's the right way to approach it. Uh, you, you talked about and mentioned at times uh, to try and use the law of large numbers and, you know, just know you've got an edge and know it's going to work and just repeat it over and over and over again. And I, I firmly agree with that. Like my concept in the way I build my portfolio is that I'm putting on a new bet every single week that a rebalance is me cleaning the slate and saying, what should I be in today and reinvesting it in practice? You don't have to sell everything to do that. That's what a rebalance is, is you just tweak it. But theoretically a re you know, law of large numbers, Every single day, every single week, every single you know short time frame is another bet. And if you size them so that none of those bets are too important over time, then you can allow the fact and trust if you got an edge, the edge will come out in the end. But if you if you get into those high volatility times and then just say, all right, whatever, I'm just going to roll the dice and we're going to bet huge here. Really, what matters is if it works then, and you're just destroying the idea of using the law of large numbers. And so, you know, the ability like the the way you structured your stuff, I could, you could just tell that it was, it was allowing it to just continually compound and repeat the similar type bets over and over again, knowing that you, you believe you have an edge because of the, because of the uh, volatility premium. And, and I, I just thought that structure was really, really well set up that you did. So speaking of structure, right. And, and, and I'm, I think of it as kind of structuring the payoff profile and that's actually the term Corey used as well in, in our podcast. And so let's talk about stops. Now, you know, there's a hundred reasons why people say don't use stops. Now, some of the reasons such as execution risk or slippage and stuff, those I get, and, and there's ways to deal with that. But purely from a mathematical standpoint, is there, do you have any thoughts or from what you've heard before, what are some of the maybe mathematical reasons why people say don't use stops? Now, it almost kind of doesn't apply to you because you when you rebalance, right, that, that's kind of a form of a stop anyway. Like you say, you're, you're, you're cleaning the slate, so to speak. But from what you gathered, you know, in, in, in kind of the space, like, is there a mathematical reason why people are so opposed to stops? Um, I think the biggest reason, at least on the Twitter conversations we've had, that people are opposed to stops are, one, because of the fact that especially if you're doing something and I get this totally, if you're doing something in a small market, um, that's, you know, if, if you're just dealing with the S and P 500, it's a pretty big market, but for things that are small, a stop can be fired off when the bid ask spreads are really wide and you could get torched by that and, and it can really eat into you. And, and, um, I'm sure anybody that's paid attention to options knows that you can get into some bad situations with how big the bid ask spread is. So a stop will, will just go into that potentially without knowing if that's a good deal or not. And I, I can get that. Um, my look at when you're doing something much more liquid like SPX or some of the other things is that's still technically an issue, but it's not as big of an issue maybe as people think. So if you've limited yourself, I can get that. 
The other thing is, is I think people are just generally against the idea of taking an action off of a price, off of a computer. And I, I, I think part of that's because stops traditionally are on something like a stock, which, you know, if a stock starts falling in price, you would get scared that it's going to, you know, it's, it's falling rapidly and you just want to get out and save yourself. But uh, there's, there's little reason. It's harder to make a justification mathematically why that's a good idea because just because the stock has fallen in price, does that mean that the bet is any different than it was before? There's a lot of people that would argue that it's a better bet because the the, the stock is cheaper. Yeah, and, and mean reversion and everything. Right, and so so from that perspective, there's plenty of people out there, and I, I totally get this argument that like a stop and and you know on a on an individual stock or an individual type investment is not a really good idea because just because the price has fallen what's changed really like why that that alone should not be the decision that causes you to sell um if there's something else going on if you believe that the you know the outlook of the business is different than you know sell but just the price alone maybe that's you know, there's no certainly no fundamental reason there right you're starting to get into pure technicals and i can see that the, the thing about options that i find so different is when you're dealing with a stop on an option and the price has fallen it is fundamentally very different because if you know if you're if you're selling a deep out of the money put and i don't know let's say 15 delta and if that if the the risk profile in the short term at that time it's not that high and by by short, short term i mean very short term i'm talking like the very local you know next few minutes or whatever because because the delta's so low, the, the risk is mainly jump at that point. And, but the, the risk profile of something that's at a 50 delta is entirely different, right? It's, it's a very different animal um, because the price can change so fast on you at that point. Whereas in the short term, a 15 delta, you, need, you actually need it to get you know, closer to the money to expect any kind of rapid movement. And so you're, you're dealing with a very different you know, like at that point, the price change actually tells you more than the price has changed. The price is telling you also at the same time that the risk profile is entirely different. And so by using that price change is also a signal within the options of the risk profile, which, which it, you know, gives you information in that it's kind of, it can tell you that you're not in, you're not in the same world you were before the, the environment has changed. And therefore, you should probably take action. And um, because options are so structured in the math of how they're set up and how they're priced, uh, you can kind of figure out roughly what that action is probably most likely supposed to be. And if, if you go from an investment, you know, we talked about it, controlling your exposure. If you've got a, if you've sold a short put deep out of the money, um, and you know that's at that time, at that very instance. It may not have that much much risk, you know, for the next short term. But once it has become something that is much closer to the money, the, it it has risk. It can change price very rapidly, and you may have sized the position properly when it was a fifteen delta. But once it became a fifty delta, uh, it's a different position size. And as we we kind of touched on earlier, if you have too much of a position size, that can flip a positive positive growth rate, positive geometric return to a negative geometric return 
just by betting too big, just by holding too aggressive of a position. Um, and I, I, I looked at what you were doing with stops and, and I, I was like, I think he's, he is built in a structure to effectively control that and keep your geometric growth strong. And I, I, I you know, I, it, I was just, I took your data and I was just surprised at how, how well it roughly seemed to work um, in that concept. I want to emphasize again, none of that was necessarily by design, so to speak. We, we kind of just <laughs> stumbled our way into these conclusions, right? And, and, you know, everything you just said and focusing on the math and the risk and looking at the position and payoff profile, it's interesting because Again, that that's all talking about the profile of that position of that trade, the risk at that moment in time, and I, and I think that's the thing that so many people, and the reason there was so much blowback about the stops on Twitter, is because, again, just like you say, people focus on the arithmetic expectancy, right? That that one instance, what is the expectancy of the one trade? There isn't enough focus on the compounded, you know, results or the repeated bets, right? Knowing that you have to take that bet over and over again. And even though initially when we wanted to use a stop, the thinking was just, heck, I don't want to take a huge loss if my wins are small, right? And, and the whole reason why you were kind of scared, so to speak, of, of selling options in the first place because of that asymmetric profile, right? So our motivation was purely from a risk management standpoint. And there's a simplicity to that that I think makes it very easy to kind of buy into, but at the same time, that completely flew in the face of what people recognize because like it, there's always that concept of like the furus and like the oh this easy one, two, three steps is gonna make money. And, and I think the things that I was saying almost kind of sounded like that. Cause sometimes I would try to argue online of stops work because they do like I, I took a strategy i did a test without stops and and here's the result and i did it with stops and the results were better right. and therefore they work and it, it, there's yeah. some you know sometimes that i don't know to, to people who are 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 smarter or you know or people who think they're smarter like it's that kind of argument i can understand why it doesn't work you so know? so two two things one you said we just focused on risk management and I think that's a key thing here because um, when you're focusing on the geometric return and you understand the importance of volatility drag, essentially good risk management keeps volatility drag low. And so you come to the realization that proper risk management isn't purely risk management. It also in, in, can increase long-term returns. And you may have stumbled into it, but I, I think that some of what you're doing is definitely doing that. Um, I, one of the things that blew me away, I, I took the two to three DTE data you had on your website and I actually spent more time on the 30 Delta and the, the closer stuff. And it was amazing to me how when you flip stops off and your, your spreadsheets are great, by the way, just if nobody listening has actually gone in there, it's, he's got so much, it, it, you don't even have to do much yourself. You, it, you can just toggle things and see how they change. Um, but the seeing how with no stops, I think it may have even been negative return, but it was, it wasn't great. Like it was certainly nothing that you would entice you. And then when you flipped on the stops, it, it totally changed the profile so much. And it essentially clipped the entire left tail out of a distribution, which when you're selling, you know, when you're selling options, the distribution's got a huge left tail and it clipped the left tail out. So it, it, 
it technically clipped the right tail too. Well, maybe not the right tail. It, it clipped off. It it reduced some of the number, the percentage of winners you had. Um, but it clipped off the size of the big losers so much that your your cager just exploded. And it was to me, it was the I, the second blog post I wrote was about how a simple coin flip game can be an absolute loser. And it's what I touched on earlier. Like it can have a negative effect, but if you just change your position sizing or your risk profile or what you're willing to risk, you can flip a game from being a bad game repeated to a good game repeated. And I looked at what was happening. That's exactly what I was trying to say online. And people are just, yeah. And I, and I looked at what I looked at that 30 Delta stuff and I was like, that's what he's doing here. He's flipping a game that in this case was kind of neutral. Maybe it was slightly bad, but it was roughly neutral and you'd flipped it to a good game. By just by controlling your risk risk exposure risk exposure, um, and yeah, I was I was really I was really impressed by it. it. It was it's quite interesting when you dig into how that plays out. You know what's interesting? I actually uh, just last night uh, taking some of your concepts. I, I built a small widget. It's over on the right hand side of that same you know two to three DT sheet. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I I took uh, I extracted the average. And this may not be purely accurate because you know averages you lose some granularity but for example i took the average um win size average loss size i put in an arbitrary uh netlick and this is interesting too because the size of the account dictates the size of the trade relative to the account which dictates the the lack or uh, more volatility drag right and so I, i basically printed out um the win loss as a percent of account and then i calculated the arithmetic expectancy and the geometric expectancy. And so I would toggle the stop on and off. And essentially what I did was, and like you said, the, the geometric uh, the return is always less than the arithmetic return, but how much does the difference between the two is determined by the volatility of the strategy, right? And so I just did a simple ratio. I, I took the, the the geometric and divided by the arithmetic, and I just got like a percent, like, oh, the geometric return is 50% of the arithmetic return, so to speak. And so without the stop on the 30 delta, uh, the, the arithmetic return, sorry, the geometric was like half of the arithmetic return, right? So essentially there's a lot of decay through the repetition from the arithmetic to the geometric. But by turning the stop on, it not only raised both the arithmetic and the geometric return, but it closed the gap. And for certain, the lower delta ones, you can almost get the geometric return to almost match. It was like 98% of the arithmetic return, right? It essentially eliminated most of the volatility tax. So I I found that so interesting. And what I did was I I took the P&Ls of each trade and I plotted like a histogram to see the distribution. And this is really interesting because a lot of people kind of look to like Yoon Sinclair's work um, and, and positional option trading, his book. And there's a section on stops. And, and he talks about the fact that, you know, you can't, what, what stops, you can't, you're, you're just changing the distribution of outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you kind of assume like a normal distribution, there's going to be some impact because if you ha- apply stops, yes, you clip the left tail and, and you're going to get a lot of, uh, clustering of of um uh outcomes right at where your stop is right but you also like you said you shift you're going to pull down you know because some losers that would have became winners right they never became winners mm-hmm. and, and and so he argues that there's cases where using stops can lower the, the expectancy which is fine but what's interesting was for that particular setup right because uh without stops the the, the histogram 
had a humongous left tail, right? There, there were some losers that were so far out on the left side. And so when I turn on the stop, right, the whole distribution changes. The average return, yes, that shifts down, right? But because that left tail is gone, and again, hopefully my math was correct, but it looked like, in fact, you do raise the arithmetic return and the geometric return. But you also close the gap between the geometric and the arithmetic return. Yeah, the, the raising the arithmetic return thing is that's mind blowing because that probably shouldn't happen, but it does <laughs> seem to. And I, I couldn't that, understand it either because so many people were basically saying like you can't do that. And then I was like, yeah, huh. the when I, I don't think it, I've been trying to figure that out too. And it's 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 a I'm not even confident enough to talk about it a little and write about it right now, but uh, I, I, I think it's the same root cause because, and I'm just real quick. It's because I think it's partially because the, um, so I have a post about how the arithmetic return doesn't exist. Um, I know you've read that. Cause I love that one. Yeah, I love that me post. once. Yeah. And, and, and one of the ideas in there is the fact that nothing we ever see in real life is actually arithmetic, arithmetic in investing because it's all compounded. So like a monthly return is still a compounded daily return. Um, and a daily return is still a compounded hourly return that everything we see has got some form of geometric in it. And then what, once you, once you understand the fact that, um, that the arithmetic return, the likelihood of you ever getting it is, is extremely low. Once you've compounded things over and over and over again at a, at a high level, um, you start realizing, you start kind of seeing the fact that like, what you're actually sampling out of the real world is geometric return. And so essentially, like if you could grasp that idea, the arithmetic returns where you see when you look at your weekly returns, they're slightly geometric returns. They're not actually arithmetic returns. Um, and so because of that, anything you do, I think to improve the arithmetic return, um, or sorry, anything you do to improve the geometric return can actually improve it can actually improve the arithmetic return that you sample from the world. I, I've done the same thing, by the way, with the Dow, the stocks in the Dow and how you rebalance them. And the amazing thing is, is if you, if you do a proper rebalance, and this is just a historical concept. I mean, I, it was just for fun, but I, I have a post of, I think I have one or two posts about it, but um, the amazing thing is, is, so if you rebalance them properly for geometric return growth, you, you do get a higher compound growth rate if you just rebalance the stocks in the Dow. But amazingly, you get a historically higher arithmetic return as well, which is really weird. So it's the same kind of thing. The fact that you actually see a higher improvement in the arithmetic return, but maybe you, sh you academically you shouldn't, but you do in real life. And it's, it's odd. But um, that was basically the grenade I threw on Twitter that ignited the so-called stop loss wars last summer, right? right? I, I made the statement. I believe stops, use of stops can raise expectancy. Now, this again goes back to maybe my use of words is just like really incorrect. And 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 there's this kind of uh, ambiguity between what is edge and what is expectancy. And maybe they're the same thing, maybe they're not. And the, the reason I did that widget on, on my back test yesterday night was i was actually try i was hoping that maybe it lowered their arithmetic return while raising the geometric return but because geometric return is what matters that is i, I was trying to unify those two schools of thought right mm -hmm. 
But then the fact that I found the arithmetic return also went up was like, huh, like, was I right? Like, is everyone wrong? Like, what's going on? So, like, uh, can you speak to or, your thoughts on, like, is edge the same thing as expectancy? Or is edge, like, I don't know. Like, people say the, the volatility risk premium is an edge, right? VRP. Well, um, yeah. I, I don't like the term expectancy the way it's traditionally used because... Should we um, specify arithmetic and geometric expectancies? Is that the distinction that needs to well, be made? Well, I mean, academically, the expected value is the arithmetic average. I mean, and that's... Academically. Okay, got yeah, it. That, that's what it is. And it, nearly every single publication you ever see, that's what it's going to be referencing. Um, the thing I don't like about it, though, is, is if you've compounded something over and over and over again, the arithmetic average of you know a, just a long normal distribution... Uh, you know, that, that can be calculated, but the chances of you getting that distribution, if it's been compounded over a long time are, can be frighteningly low, like, you know, 1%, half a percent. I mean, it can be crazy. So it may be, ex to call it expected for something that is extremely unlikely. Like I, I find that to be difficult to, to swallow. Um, Cause it's not really expected to me. Like you, you and, but from a, from a pure, like, if we if we get rid of that word and just use arithmetic uh, return and um, geometric return, I mean, to me, arithmetic like edge is the arithmetic return. It's it's that you're probably going to win tomorrow. You're probably going to win that single bet. But the key is is ultimately when if you just look at yourself ten years from now, what you really what yourself needs to realize is a geometric return, and so you get that by properly sizing positive arithmetic bets so that you don't you don't oversize them you don't bet them too aggressively and you find a bet with a, with an edge with an arithmetic return and then you size it and can you know size your exposure to that bet and that risk so that your geometric growth is positive that's the way i think uh it should be looked at but you, we uh, there's i mean as you said this there's a lot of discussions where people cross them because to me, once you put any decent amount of time into the mix, it's, it's not an arithmetic return. And just because you said you had an edge, you know, you, you believe you have a weekly edge that does not mean you guaranteed have a decade edge kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. But, but the thing is like, so I, I can buy into, and it, in fact, again, I was trying to validate the fact that Hey, maybe I was lowering the arithmetic return, but raising the geometric one. And because the mm -hmm. geometric one is what matters, that's why there's long-term success. But then, and, and I think you mentioned you don't necessarily are confident to speak to like, why did the arithmetic return go up? Right? It's it just a coincidence or that I just happened because, or is it just because of how skewed the distribution of like a short put is, right? Be, if the distribution is skewed enough, than cutting off the left tail. And actually, one of my friends made this really interesting comment, <clears throat> right? We talk about the asymmetrical impact of volatility tax, right? So a, a, a drawdown is hurts you more than an equal uh, increase will help mm -hmm. you, right? But if you think about it this way, then a stop, you know, people say, yes, you cut the losers, but you cut the winners. But if the impact is asymmetric, then we're getting rid of a bad thing that hurts you more than we are getting rid of a good thing that helps you. So we're we're actually taking advantage of the asymmetry 
does that do you think that makes sense like because of the mm -hmm. asymmetry it's how we can raise the arithmetic return if the distribution is so skewed you just have to cut off like a couple of those monster ones on the left yeah and entirely so when we when i mentioned earlier that the volatility drag was roughly um half the volatility squared that's only true if you're if technically true if you're dealing with a log normal distribution and it's only and estimated to be true if you're dealing with something that's kind of got a fairly symmetrical type return in a similar normalish shape. Um, when you start getting very skewed, especially left skewed uh, profile returns, it's not a good estimator. It's it's too low for something like selling options because the left tail is so big. So that difference, that volatility drag is something with good risk sizing, with good position sizing. It's something that can theoretically be harvested back into your profile you don't have to just flat accept it um so is everyone and, just missing and, this point <laughs> like, it's yeah just like... and, and and so that that's part of the reason options are such a wonderful world to think through this and how you're positioning sizing especially selling options because there's a huge there's a huge benefit because of the huge left tail in your in your return profile that if you can find a way to properly control that and like i said i believe your stops is a is a perfectly valid very very strong way to do that then um then then you can you can your the, the the room for growth and improvement in a compound growth rate can be huge and so you can look at a strategy that maybe over a year is always losing but on a daily basis it technically is a winner but it's losing only because you just get that every so now and thing that just destroys you know just horrible return but if you can find a way to just redistrib you know adjust your return profile clip that tail off maybe accept a little bit lower return you can you can flip the whole the whole trajectory of the of the math and and like literally clicking through your 2 to 3 dte sheet and just changing variables you can see the trajectory of your return structure change now granted it's only what 5 or 6 years it's not like you have an enormous amount of data there but that, that one's less actually that one okay. is like 2 and a half years but there yeah, is a but, large uh, difference of like 2018 was like a terrible year so th there is a lot of different market conditions and kind of but yeah, yeah you you can see how the trajectory of of your returns do this and even even when you mess with your longer dated stuff your theta engine stuff you can still you can still mess with some of those data and you can see how adjusting risk profiles and stops and targets moves where the where your where the growth path of the portfolio goes to um and uh and, and yeah so it's I think it's powerful stuff. Yeah, and, and that kind of reminds me, like, um, you know, bringing back to uh, that term that you know I, I was getting some ridicule for, right? Expectancy hacking. Like, it, there's just so much disbelief, and I realized, and, and you and I spoke. I was like, maybe the proper term was like Kager hacking, right? That's yeah. what I was. I, I was geometric return hacking. Now, now I, I've used the phrase so much. I, I think I'll just stick with it because it's sort of been like a banner. But like now your work has helped me come kind of full circle and kind of unify everything. Like, oh, this is what I was doing. I just didn't know how to say it. I couldn't right. explain it properly. Um, well, you know, one way, just going back to something I mentioned a long time ago was or earlier in this conversation was how I, I did this lot of studies. And, and I think most people understand, not most people, but at least a lot of people in the investing industry understand the concept of selling a put to or sorry, of buying a, an out of the money put to trim your like, you know, S&P 500 exposure and that that can increase your geometric return. The concept of that, I think people get. And the interesting thing is, is when you 
you're you're actually that's technically what you do when the stop fires is you are buying a long you're buying a put to close out the position and so like if you can sit there in the other world and say well buying a put can be a bad idea for your arithmetic return but help the portfolio growth why can't people acknowledge that buying a put on a put on a put selling strategy can do literally the exact same thing and help the compound growth and, I was and just, it, just just because it's systematic just because it's systemized i mean there's plenty of people that have systemized put selling put buying strategies you know that they believe help their portfolio growth and so i don't think, see any problem with the systemized part of it i've <laughs> it realized sense to me i think it's because of the focus on this trade the expectancy of this position mm-hmm. you know my systems are systematic not in just the sense of the mechanics of adjusting the positions but systematic in the sense of repeated bets right now yes when you sell puts every day they're correlated sure but i mentioned that because i'm selling every day there is some slight difference in the delta the expiration the exposure so there's a little bit of path in uh independency between the positions which helps but again the the concept of when I stop out, I'm not just done, right? I'm right. I'm, I'm I'm actually trying to put on multiple bets, and and it's almost like micro adjustments. And and I'm talked about, hey, I can talk about the stops and the profit takes, in using words like delta hedging and portfolio, you know, risk mitigation and and adjusting, and never use the word stop, and it's almost more palatable, right? But really talking about the same thing, um, but I think um uh, and uh and which reminds me like. You know the fact that I was so blown. Like, why does the arithmetic average go up? Like this concept of like, you know, your blog title, right? Breaking the market. Like, can can you remind us? Like, why did you call it that? Is it because you thought you also found something that like was so counter to the, you know, the 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 traditional literature? Um. Yes, a little bit. Um, the blog title actually came from a joke with my wife because I, you know, I'd be done. There'd be times I'd have to literally work for engineering stuff in the evening, you know, put the kids to bed or something like that, and then uh, and then get back in and do a do an engineering project. But um, a lot of other times I would put the kids to bed and pull out a computer and start studying a market strategy or something like that. And so my wife would look at me on the you know couch and say like, "Are you working? Or are you just looking at you know, or are you doing something else?" Because she couldn't tell because I was so deep in focus. And so the joke was, is I, I just told, told us that, no, I'm breaking the market. I'm figuring out how to, you know, invest better than anybody else. And um, so that just stuck. And so essentially the blog was me taking like 10 years worth of studying the market and, and putting it into paper. So that's why I called it breaking the market because of that kind of story I had with my wife about like, you know, she didn't know if I was working or if I was doing something else because I looked like I was so deep in thought. And I, I joked that I was trying to break the market. I see um, that that makes sense, but I think it kind of is fitting as well because of your your ultimately the conclusions that you came up with were like kind of predicated right. on these foundational concepts that were so, so it, different. It, it works in two fronts, and that like yeah, I am trying to explain that there's parts of the stuff that people think about the market that I just don't think that they're correct. I I find one of the funny things is that there's a lot of paradoxes and puzzles inside the market. Uh, and I, some of them just don't seem to be that puzzling. If you just look at it from a geometric point of view that like it, maybe it makes sense that that's exactly why the market organizes itself. Whereas traditional view thinks that, you know, the equity premium uh, paradox or puzzle is a thing that just can't be explained. And it, 
doesn't look that funny to me when I look at it from a geometric perspective. And I, I have that, I have an article on that in the post. Um, yeah, no, for sure. Um, and the last thing I wanted to, to ask about before wrapping up is your system, you know, is focused on asset allocation, right? And, and you talk about how you, you look at some historical data and you track the volatility of an asset and then the performance and the correlations and use that to tune your allocation and weightings. And you know, for us, because we're so systematized, the way we backtest our, our, our strategies and run them in an automated fashion, right? And we kind of have this ensemble approach of multiple strategies. And because of that, we can track and study each individual strategy and we can kind of estimate the expected return, the volatility. And I was almost wondering, like, do you think we can apply that framework of asset allocation to strategy allocation and kind of weighting them differently and trying to maximize the compound return of the ensemble, so to speak? Because so that may the, be a way to kind of apply your framework to something outside of just kind of pure stock picking, for example. Right. Um, so I think the answer is yes, but it's trickier. Um, I've actually spent about the last year uh, building my entire model and adding managed futures to it so I could I would have a, a fifth asset to invest in. Um, you know, part of that's because managed futures have been interesting. Now, I haven't implemented that anywhere. I just built the whole thing, been studying it, watching how it works, trying to get clear on it. It's an interest when you start dealing with strategies as opposed to pure assets, it's a little, it's a little different because um, things like projecting volatility and correlation, and I'm going to speak to this like with my looking into managed futures, uh, you could have, you know, the volatility may be at a certain level and it may be climbing, but if the manager or somebody on the other end of it is actively cutting back volatility, then the fact it went high, it may actually revert back down to a, to a target. So not everybody's that way. Mind you, some strategies will just let the volatility flow, but other people on that, you know, other strategies are actually trying to control or manage where the volatility is. So it's not necessarily as predictive um, as it is, it, at least in my experience of looking at this stuff. Same thing with correlations, especially if you've got some strategy that lets you go long and short. Um, you can have a strategy that's highly correlated, but then if the thing flips to short, and it does it pretty quickly, it can be negative correlated. And if if your way of predicting those kind of things doesn't understand that, it, you can get yourself way out of whack in as far as an actual prediction of what's coming in the future. And so when you start getting into strategies, it's a little trickier in that you have to be a lot more conscious of the fact that your predictions of the future maybe are not real good. Now that, now that said, you can look at longer term concepts or you can try and the best thing, the easiest thing, honestly, is to find something that seems roughly uncorrelated because um, then there's a lot less prediction going on and you can just kind of lay, lay the approach in it as an uncorrelated uh, estimation. And then maybe if you do have something that you know that the, the strategy is trying to target to a certain volatility, you can, you can just go and, and just assume that it's sitting at that volatility and, and hope that they're doing it right now. I, I say hope in here a couple of times and guess because one of the things I talk about in the blog is the fact that, you know, it's, I study a lot of random games where, you know, the parameters investing, you do not know the parameters. So you have to understand kind of how your mistakes and how your errors come into this. And that, that becomes a lot more important. I think when you're starting to look at in integrating strategies, but um, I, I do totally think that you can do that. You, you just, you need to look through, you just have to be willing to realize that you can't be maybe as 
you have to be a lot more conscious about how you're estimating and thinking about your return properties and your, your um, correlation and volatility properties of the assets to make sure that you're making good assumptions and that they're not going to flip on you. But I mean, I've, like I said, I've spent a lot of time with managed futures. I've taken some of your data and tried to figure, you know, tried to blend it with mine just to kind of understand if I, if I incorporated some kind of um, yeah, intelligent put selling strategy into it, how would I do it? What would make sense? Uh, one thing I like about yours is it, it actually seems pretty stable. It doesn't seem to move around a ton. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and on that note, actually, um, you may not have seen it yet, but I did episode and I built this whole model portfolio, which I did combine data from traditional assets with some of the data from our strategies. And you can kind of play with the tuning and see the performance and stuff. So you might be interested to take a look, but you know, that's why I asked because, you know, uh, everything you know the concepts that again like i said your your ideas align with a lot of what we do but always looking for ways to kind of make it actionable and and take some nuggets here and try to improve what we do um but but with that said you know matt really you know we've already gone longer than my usual podcast so i really appreciate the time um is there anything that you wanted to share as far as where people can find you like on, on twitter or or the blog um Sure. The, my blog is breakingthemarket.com. Um, I haven't posted a ton on there recently, but I'm hoping to start getting into that a little bit, uh, a little bit more. But I, I have three years of content or so where I posted at least every two weeks, more like every once a week. So there's a lot of stuff on there to read if you really want to get in there. Um, the RIA is pronghorn analytics, same name.com. Um, yeah. And then on Twitter, which is I don't spend as much time as I used to on there. I was on there way too much. That place is addicting. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, at breaking the mark is my Twitter handle. And uh, was that, was breaking the market not uh, available? I, I noticed it's, it's, it was too long. It was too long, and I couldn't honestly figure out how I wanted to trim it. So I just took the last two letters off. Oh, there was back. actually a limit. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I realized that. Okay, I, yeah, when so. I signed up, there was a limit. Maybe there's not now. But and if there's not, I'll probably add the et on the end of it. But all right. Um, so at breaking the mark. Okay, yeah. got it. All right. Again, Matt, thank you so much for, for coming on Trade Busters. That was re really fascinating. Really enjoyed the yeah, talk. Thanks, David. This was a lot of fun.